The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord, Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. We are two weeks now into our 10-week series on the Ten Commandments. We have been preaching verse by verse through the whole book of Exodus, and now we come to Exodus 20, and we're going to spend 10 weeks in Exodus 20. Uh, Last week, we studied the first commandment. The first commandment, we're going to learn these. We're going to memorize these, I hope. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what God says. We learned, um, and the quote will be on the screen, from Martin Luther, that whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Whoa. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. That's what Martin Luther taught us last week. And now listen, so this is kind of interesting. The first commandment, you cannot break any of the other nine commandments without first breaking the first commandment. Okay. What happens when you stop worshiping God is that you begin to worship something else. Okay. We're going to talk about that this morning. So the first commandment and the second commandment are intimately connected. They are kind of two sides of the same coin. So much so that Catholics and Lutherans teach that this is actually the first commandment. And then they break out 
The last commandment, not to covet, they break that into two separate commandments. Don't covet you know, after your neighbor's things. Don't covet after your neighbor's wife. But as, but as Protestants, as the Reformed, we, the Anglican, we take the view that these are separate commandments, but they are intimately connected to one another. And what we see, this, commandments one and commandments two are all about worship. Okay? They're about worship. Now, most of us probably don't know what worship is. We think, well, that, yeah, that's what we just did, right? No, no, no. Worship isn't just singing. Worship isn't just the, the music time of the service. Listen to Harold Best in his book, Unceasing Worship. This is how he defines worship. Worship is the continuous outpouring, that's key, the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. Now, there's a lot in that definition, so let me break it down for us. First, let me show you where he gets his definition from. God himself is a triune God, okay? He exists in himself, in his essence, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God, in his essence, is a giver, okay? He gives of himself. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. St. Augustine said that the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them. And that means the, the, that God himself, in his essence, is always giving out, always pouring out. So much so that we are completely dependent upon him. If God stopped giving, the sun would not exist, right? We would not have the air we need. We would not have the water we would need. We would not have the mental capacity to function that we need. If God stopped pouring out, we would cease to exist. Right? And be, so because God made us a mago day, that means in his image, unique among all of his creation, we too, here it is, are always giving ourselves to something. That means we always worship. We always, think about this, we're always pouring out our emotions, our time, our money, our attention towards something or someone. So Harold Best says, this is what worship is. Worship is the continuous outpouring of our lives. What this means for us is that everyone worships all the time. Atheists worship. Buddhists worship. Christians worship. No one does not worship. I've often described it like this. Human beings are like a garden hose with no nozzle on the end. The garden hose, the water's turned on. There's no nozzle at the end. The water is pouring out all the time, right? For us, that water that's pouring out of our lives, of our heart, that water is our attention, our praise, our love, our devotion, our money, our affections, our time, our adoration. And this is our worship. It is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become. Now, everyone does this all the time. Everyone is the garden hose that's constantly pouring themselves out for someone or something all the time. This is what we were made to do. So here's the question. The question isn't this morning, do we worship? The question is, what do we worship? 
Where is the garden hose of your heart pointed? Where are you pouring out your affections, your time? What are you worshiping? So let's look at Martin Luther again. And he adds to the quote that we started last week. And he says this in the second quote I got, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Now look, trust and faith of the heart alone make, look, both God and idol. Okay, so your heart is always pouring out. Your heart is always clinging to something for ultimate satisfaction. And Luther tells us here, whatever that water, whatever the garden hose is pointed towards, that thing becomes, that thing is either God or an idol. So there is no like category in your head that you get a check box, you know, check a box. We talked about this last week. Well, what do you worship? Well, I worship Jesus because I checked the box when I voted that I'm a Christian, right? I was raised in a Christian home, check right? I go to church, check. No, no, no. Your heart determines what you worship. What is it clinging to? What is it relying upon? Where is your worship going? That is your God. That means you can have, you can say you're worshiping this God with your mouth, but in actuality, your heart is clinging to another God and you're actually worshiping what the Bible calls an idol. So anytime we break the first commandment and we don't worship God, we create an idol. We worship this created thing called an idol. But this is what we're getting at this morning. And this is the whole, this whole little series is about. If you're worshiping God in the right way, it is going to lead to greater and greater freedom and joy. But if you're worshiping something other than God, that is going to lead to greater and greater slavery and end in sorrow. So let's take a look at our text this morning. We're in Exodus chapter 20. I hope you can open up your Bibles there with me. Go to your app if you have to. There's Bibles laying on the floor if you need those. We're going to go there this morning. So we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 and 6 this morning, taking a look at the second commandment. Here we go. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, what's going on here? God is saying this. He's, he's saying two things. First, he's saying, do not make anything to represent me. He's saying, we are not to carve out any statues or make any images that we can put on our shelves to worship. That this religion that God is setting up here, kind of this, this, the way to worship him is different from the, the other ways of worship throughout the world. You cannot make any graven images. You cannot make any idols. Now, why? Well, first and foremost, because God is transcendent. As soon as you make something and say that this thing reminds you of God, you have limited God. He is not like anything in creation. He is holy, high, and lifted up above all of his creation. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's, it kind of cuts both ways. Idolatry is making an image and saying it's God, even if it, you think it represents your God, or it's also making anything and worshiping it, making any cre anything in creation and worshiping it, putting it on your mantle, putting it in your pocket, taking it with you. And so God says here, second commandment, 
make no idols. Now, you know what? I'm just glad that we don't do this, right? I'm just really glad in our culture we just don't have idols at all, and this is such a primitive kind of backwoods mentality, right? Like, think about just like, back in the day, they used to have these temples where thousands of people would go, and they would make sacrifices to animals, and they would like lift their hands up, and they would chant, and they would they would just do all these pagan things. Like, I'm really glad. I mean, it sounds kind of like what's going to happen tonight at the Super Bowl, but I mean, not really. I mean, not really, right? Like, well, I guess they will sacrifice some animals. It's called barbecue, right? And then, right, I think there will be some worship. There will be some face painting. There might be some letting of, you know, cutting of, 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 uh, of their flesh, right? There might be some praying to the gods or whoever your team is, right? There might be some of that. Now, I'm being a little facetious, obviously. I want to just ask us this morning, though, as we look at this text and we think about this text, why would anyone worship an idol? Think about it. This is a, this is a commandment. Don't go outside and cut down a tree and bring it in and take off the bark and whittle it down and make a little idol and then sit it on your shelf and then worship it. We have to be told not to do that? What, what part of that sounds appealing? What, when does something you made with your own hands, right? You made it. You chose what it was going to look like. You whittled it down. And now all of a sudden, it somehow gains some kind of quality that I can pray to it and it can answer my prayers. Now, it seems really foolish that we even have to be commanded not to do that. Like all of a sudden, this thing goes from a hunk of wood to a God, right? Now we can put it on our mantle and carry it around in our pocket, and this thing is a God to us. Somehow, now this thing possesses some kind of supernatural power that can bring us into the presence of God, or we can pray to it and expect it to hear us and answer our prayers. But that's exactly what the people of Moses' day did. It seems so foolish, but their houses, and if you go to India, this still goes on. Like Hinduism has, what is it, 30 million or 300 million, I can't remember, gods or goddesses. And you have a little statue, like little G.I. Joes you can line up on your mantle. Anything you want to worship, there's one for that. You can worship it. See, they believe these things that they created with their own hands somehow would bring them into the presence of the gods and they would procure favor for them. They would give them some kind of meaning or they would answer their prayers or give them a sense of transcendence. But as I'm joking, before we look back on all these primitive people with what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, before we say like, oh, they're primitive, uneducated, silly people, we should at least examine some evidence of why making an idol and worshiping it might be desirable. And I've got, I think, five reasons here. One, it's easy, right? Worshiping or making an idol is easy. You, you, if you've got a few resources and a little imagination, you can make one. Second, it's controllable and malleable. You can make an idol into whatever image you want to make it into. He can be strong and dangerous and you can pray to him to kill your enemies or he can be soft and cuddly and just give you all the feels. Third, it's safe. There's no risk of this idol waking up and killing you in your sleep, right? 
An idol, you made it, you whittled it, it's lifeless, you sit it on your shelf. Guess what an idol will never do? An idol will never say, I think you're spending too much time at work. See, an idol will never ask too much from us. It'll never cross us. It's safe. Fourth, it's tangible. Who doesn't want a God they can see? A God they can take around with them and touch if they want to. When they're feeling down at night, they can pick it up and cuddle it, whisper sweet nothings into its wooden ear. And lastly, it's business. It's tick for tack. This is what I mean by that. An idol, what's it supposed to do? You give your devotion to it. You pray to it. You honor it. You revere it. And it is supposed to do what you want it to do. So I kneel and I pray and I worship. And now you give me what I want. Whether it's fertility, whether it's a good harvest, whether it's success in life, it's tick for tack. Now, just for the record, this is what we're confronted with this morning. The real God is none of those things. God isn't easy, and it isn't easy or convenient to worship him. And the the exact opposite, to worship God rightly, it takes our money, and it takes our time, and it takes our attention, it takes our devotion. Second, God is not controllable or malleable. God is who he is, and we are the ones that have to be malleable. We are the ones that have to change ourselves to meet with him. God isn't safe either. Here in Exodus, he shows up in a thick cloud with rumbling and thunders and an earthquake, and the people are standing at the edge of Mount Sinai, scared to death because God's glory is too much for them to handle. And fourth, God is a spirit, and therefore he cannot be touched. He cannot be seen. And lastly, God doesn't work tick for tack. He does not enter into a business relationship with us. This is more like a marriage relationship. You can ask God for things, and he might give them to you, but he is a spouse. He has the will to say no to us. We don't just pray, and then he gives us whatever our hearts desires. And so if we look at this, we might see how, okay, I kind of understand why someone might want to worship an idol. It's a lot easier. We can control it. It does what we want it to do. This is why, listen to this. Theologian Peter Kreeft, he says this. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism. The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. Idolatry is going to something or someone for something I can only get from God. Idolatry is giving the worship of my life to some created thing. Now, what are some idols that we tend to worship in our day and age? Now, this is, this is kind of where it's going to get a little uncomfortable, possibly, for us this morning. I want you to think about this. You're going to diagnose some diagnostic heart work here this morning. What do you go to? Now, first off, let me say this. When we walk into somebody else's house, we can see every, we can kind of see their idols a lot of times, right? When we meet somebody, we can kind of see what we're not good at is seeing our own idols. 
And so I'm going to ask some questions, and I hope that you, these, these, and I'll post something on the city later so we can help work us through this and talk us through this, because it's important for us to be able to diagnose ourselves to see if we're worshiping some kind of false idols, because if we're worshiping these false idols, they're going to lead to slavery and, then, and not freedom. Let me ask you this. When you're feeling a little tired, what do you go to? What do you go to when you're tired? Who or what do you seek when you're a little depressed? When you're feeling a little below average, a little forgotten and unimportant, what do you do? These might be, you know, trails that you can follow to lead us to any idols that you might be worshiping. Do you shop? Like, you know what I mean. You feel, you don't feel very cute, right? So just Amazon Prime. That's cute. Boom. Solved it. Right? When you're, I want you to do this. Like, do you, are you medicating with shopping? Buying things gives you the little pick you up that you need. This is kind of the worship of consumerism. This is why we go to malls, right? We willingly go to places that pe- you can't make eye contact with people. Little key, right? You know about the kiosks. We willingly subject ourselves where I'm not making eye contact with you and you're still confronting me, right? Like w- these people are attacking us. Like, I don't need mascara, man. Go on. No, I don't want my eyebrows braided. All right, get out of here. Right? Why do we go to these places? Why do we go? Well, many times we go to worship. We go to feel better about ourselves. We're feeling down. We go to the mall to worship. This is the worship comes sometimes of consumerism. Some of us do. What do we do? Do we go to the bottle? Right? Do we go to the bottle? And that buzz gives us what we need. See, alcoholism is the worship of alcohol. That's what it is. It's a voluntary slavery that we signed up for. Now, if you're down the road, it's not voluntary anymore. That's what slavery is. Like, it consumes us. But that first drink, that first time we got hammered, that was voluntary. You go to porn. That screen. You're craving intimacy. And you go to a screen, a 2D image on a screen to try to find it. And for a second, you get that buzz. You get the heartbeat. You get the feels that you're looking for. But then it ends in slavery. Or you go to work. One more sale. Just, just, one more, just one more email. Just one more email. One more hour at work. And that'll give me the sense of meaning and power and success that I'm looking for. Workaholism. The worship of work. Basically, if you can put an ism on it, it's idolatry. Individualism. My opinion, my thoughts matter more than everybody else's in the world. And that brings me to maybe, this is going to get me in trouble this morning, but just so you know, 
I'm in trouble with myself too, okay? I'm preaching to myself. Possibly the most prominent, prominent idol of our time are cell phones. Always on. Always online. Always in the know. Always connected. Always available. You're feeling down. Just post a selfie. And then let the likes wash over you like the noonday sun. Addiction specialists tell us the feeling you get from social media is the same feelings a person gets from using drugs or working out, and it's highly addictive. You posted it, you check, you check, you check. Any comments, any likes? Many of us say, man, I wish I had more time for prayer. I wish I had more time for Bible study but our cell phones tell the real story. We have plenty of time for responding to emails, for Facebook, for Instagram, for Netflix. And listen, that's one of the top things children say about their parents is that I wish they would stop staring at their phones. Seems like our idols might not be made of wood and stone. They're made of steel and glass, and they fit in the pocket of our skinny jeans. And many of us, like all idolatry, we've become a slave to them. We have signed up for slavery. We have volunteered for slavery. We jump every time they buzz. We peek every time they light up. We never go anywhere without them. And for many of us, they're the last thing we look at at night and they're first thing we look at in the morning. Our phones have become our masters. I've heard it said that one of the ways to know if something is an idol is if its removal from your life would be too much to bear. I can't go on. I couldn't. I wouldn't have meaning. I wouldn't have connection. I, I wouldn't know what to do if it was taken from me. Now, I'm not suggesting we throw away our phones. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what? What if you removed email from your phone? So you could only answer email if you went to your computer. What if you removed Facebook and Twitter and Instagram from your phone? Or what if you, oh my Lord, this could be blasphemous. What if you only checked it once a day? And listen, I realize the difficulties involved here. I realize the personal connection that we sometimes find. I realize the business. If you own a business, there's this, like, there's this need. Like, I, I won't be able to get ahead. I won't be able to succeed if I don't have this social media presence. But what if... It's doing something to our soul. What if it's making slaves of us? What if it's shaping us and changing us in ways that we're not even aware of? What if we did something where this thing could become just a phone again? Would you, would you still stare at it? 
Would you still just inset? Do you, have you realized that like sometimes like, I don't know, I've got like these little ticks, right? I'm just like checking for my phone all the time. If I, there's any like, sometimes I have, I don't know if you've ever had the ghost vibrate like in your pocket. You're like, oh, I just got to, oh, wait, it didn't buzz. What the heck? Like my body is like, you're important. You're important. People want to talk to you. <laughs> like, like, what the heck just happened? Right? We're being changed. Like we've created, it's like any of these movies that we watch. We create technology and then technology tries to recreate us. What if? We drastically made some changes to the way that we handle it. It's a tool. It's not bad, but if, it's, if we're worshiping it, if we're finding our meaning through it, it is bad, and it's become an idol. Social media, emails, dating apps, they might give you this fleeting moment of positive feelings, but if they're getting in the way of the way you connect with God. And if you're going to them to get the transcendence and meaning that you can only find in God, they've become an idol. What if we let our phones just become a phone again and then maybe we would have time to read the Bible or pray or go for a walk or pick up a book? Maybe. And you know what? This is kind of... God loves us and because he loves us, He hates idols. I'm going to show you this. Let's go back to our text. You shall not bow down. Look at this. You shall not bow down to them, serve them. We don't do that, right? Except that doctors now have this new thing that they're telling people have text neck. What is text neck? That means this. We don't bow down and worship anything. Except unless this is kind of bow down and worshiping things. We have text neck, right? It's a thing now. Let's keep going. I'm getting off. Sorry. For I, the Lord, look, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Look, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, right here, this, we might think this is something negative. What does it mean that God is jealous? Well, as we learned last week, God sees Israel as his spouse. And these Ten Commandments are his wedding vows. He's already saved them. He's already loved them. He's already brought them in. And now he's saying, this is the rules of the covenant. This is the rules of marriage. Don't worship other gods. Now, what's going on right here? This is a good jealousy. This isn't envy. This isn't like bitterness. This isn't pettiness. This is a husband on his wedding night, and his wife is being tempted to go off with another man. Right? He's not going to be like, oh, okay, fine. I'll see you in the morning. No, he's going to be jealous. He's going to say, don't do that, right? This is what it means that God is a jealous God. Not that he's petty, that he loves us with this intimate spousal type love, that he wants to be affectionate towards us and wants to have this exclusive intimate relationship with us. And when we go off to other idols, it's like having an affair on him. This is the, another difference between God And idols, idols don't care if you worship other gods. They allow you to love and worship whatever other gods you want. But God says, I don't love you like that. This isn't an open relationship. I love you exclusively. And I want you to be exclusive 
with me. And over the next seven more weeks, I hope that we're going to learn how to identify some of these like common idols that we worship. Why? So we can identify them, so that we can repent of them. And listen, so we can see how Jesus is better than all of these idols that we are tempted to worship. It's interesting to me. In the book of 1 John, the apostle says in chapter 1, listen, that he's writing to the believers so that their joy would be complete. Listen, he's writing to the believers so that their joy would be complete. And he spends five chapters teaching them how much God has loved them and how much Jesus has done for them. But do you know how John wraps up his letter? It's, it's the strangest, one of the strangest endings to all the books of the Bible. This is the last thing he says to them. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Hmm. See, that's how he ends it. Why? Because it's a summary statement of everything he taught him in the book. And he's saying this, if you worship idols, you will never realize the joy that is given to you in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, but here's one. God has made us in such a way, listen here, that what we worship, listen, we become like what we worship. It's very unique. This is what G.K. Beale, a scholar, says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. See, that's what our liturgy said this morning in our confession, because that's what the scripture says. It says, when you worship an idol, you become like it. When you worship God, you become like him. When you worship an idol, you become like it. You lose like a sense of being alive, right? You become just as lifeless and just as joyless and just as hard-hearted as the material it is made of. You have eyes, but you can no longer see the good things in your life. You can't see the evidence of grace and how God is moving and God is working in your life. You become hard-hearted to that. Your eyes become hardened. You have ears, but you no longer hear the sweet voice of the Holy Spirit. You have a tongue, but it becomes sharp. It becomes sharp as a sword, and you use it to cut down others, even the ones you love. And you know what? I realize that a lot of our idolatries have been passed down to us from our parents. Now look, our parents worshipped money and comfort or maybe they didn't have money and they didn't have comfort and we said one day we will and now we worship money and comfort. They worship the squeaky clean appearances that are only found by not being truly known and now we worship surface level relationships and easy hookups. They worship sports 
Now we worship sports. Or maybe it's success. And parents, if you worship success, you will teach your kids that they should be great at whatever they put their mind to. And statistics show that today's college kids are the most anxious and stressed out generation ever. Why? First, because of the impact of social media has had on them. They think they have to live up to everybody else's posts that look like they live a spectacular life all the time. And second, parents, because we have expected them to be great at everything. Perfect student, perfect athlete, perfect musician. And you know what they do? They grow up and they feel this pressure to find the perfect school, declare the perfect major, earn the perfect grades, land the perfect career, in the perfect city, with the perfect friends, and the perfect social media presence, while finding the perfect soulmate who loves Jesus perfectly. And they are just, listen to this, they are just as exhausted and just as stressed out as their friends who aren't Christian. This is not the good news of the gospel. This is, we're raising our kids to worship our idols and become slaves to them. And it's interesting, as we look in our text, this is what God means here when he says, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Visiting the iniquity. What's he saying? He's saying our idolatry affects our children. And it affects our children and their children and their children. And listen, but this is no excuse for us to come in here and say, well, my parents taught me this. My parents raised me that way. I can't help it. No, 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 no. You need to look at this text one more time. There's no excuse to say I was raised that way. We must see our idolatry, repent of our sin, and rejoice in the reality that Jesus is so much better. That's why, look at this, right on the heels of saying that God lets our sins trickle down three to four generations, he makes the, most, the greatest comparative statement in the Bible. He says our idolatry can last three to four generations, but God's love can last a thousand generations. Three to four to a thousand generations. This is the expulsive power of Jesus. Think about it. God's love through Jesus can change us a thousand generations down the line. Why is that? Because idols don't have any real power to change us or to help us because they're false gods, but Jesus is the real thing. And I want to take one moment as I close here to go to Colossians chapter 1. I want us to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So if you can flip over there, flip over there real quick. Listen, idolatry is a reality. Now listen, so, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the thought. Let me pull this together real quick. We have these hearts that worship something, right? 
And if we get off from God, if we stop worshiping God, we begin to worship these things that are called idols, these created things. It can be a person. It can be, we got it, right? It can be all these different things. But what is going to get us to point the direction of our life, to point the worship of our life back to God? Listen, it's not a slap on the wrist, right? It takes more than just identifying your idols and saying, dang it, I'm sorry I did that. Stop it, Justin, right? Tattoo it on my forehead, write it on my hand, get up every morning, say a few verses. That's not what's going to happen. What's, this, is what, this is what frees us from our idolatries. And we call it like this. It's an expulsive power of a new affection. What the heck does that mean? I stop going to this restaurant when I find a better restaurant, right? I stop drinking this when I find something better that I like, right? This is what it means. We stop worshiping God when we find, or we stop worshiping our idols when we find something better. And here's the thing. That is Jesus. Jesus is better than any created thing. He's better than a spouse. He's better than a career. He's better than a million dollars. He's better than your sports team. He's better than success. He's better than power. He's better than sex. He's better than anything. Jesus is that thing. He's a person. I don't like calling him a thing, but he's a person. He's the best. Now, how do you stop worshiping these lesser things? You get your eyes on Jesus and you see how he really is. You see him in his person. You see him in his transcendence. You see him in his power. You see him in, his, in the gospel and what he's done for you. And you continually turn your eyes back to it and go, whoa, I can't believe he did it. And that's what Colossians 1, 15 through 23 is all about. I want us to sit down in it and go, whoa. Jesus, verse 15. Jesus, that's he, is the image of the invisible God. Ho-ho! God says, don't make idols. Why? Because every idol lies. And God had a plan in Exodus that he was going to send his own image down in Jesus. See, an idol can't image God, but Jesus is the image of God. Don't make idols. I got a plan. I'm going to send Jesus. Jesus is going to walk among you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, God made flesh, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers. Another word for Jesus is the word. He was the logos. In the beginning when God spoke, that was Jesus. Jesus created everything there was. Jesus is holding all things together. Jesus is preeminent over all of creation. Jesus is God. Keep reading. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Why is church important? Why should you be a member? Because Jesus is the head of this body, and if you want to get to know him, you need to be in his body. You need to be among his people. This is how you learn of him. This is how you see. This is how your affections get turned off of your idols and turned on to him. Be a part of his church, part of his body. Wow. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He's the first one to ever kill death. He's the first one to be resurrected. 
All of us one day will be resurrected when he comes back. That's why it says he's the firstborn because it's gonna happen to us if we put our faith in Christ. We will be lifted up from dust. From dust we came, the dust will return. But when Christ comes back, just like in the beginning when God picked up the dirt and he, and he made man and he breathed life into it, God's gonna do the same thing to us and where he's gonna give us brand new bodies and the new heavens and the new earth when he remakes all things. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent means he's better than everything. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What's in an idol? Nothing. It's wood, it's glass, it's stone. There's nothing in it. What's in Jesus? God is in Jesus. The fullness of God is in Jesus. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What's he saying? Jesus' mission wasn't just to save you, to get you into heaven. Jesus' mission is to reconcile all things, to renew all things. All the earth is broken and all the earth is going to be restored to the power of Jesus. And you, that's us, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. What's that say? Look, listen to me. Jesus lived the perfect life that you don't live. He obeyed all the Ten Commandments that we break. But this is what he did. He took our place. And on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve for breaking the commandments and committing adultery on God. Jesus took that punishment. All right? And so we've been washed clean. But look at this. Look at this next verse. In order oh, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before, before God. Do you realize what God has done for you? You feel dirty, you feel unclean, you feel guilty, you feel ashamed, but Christ has lived for you, Christ has died for you, Christ's resurrection and Christ's righteousness is counted towards you, and he is going to present you blameless and holy before the throne of God. One day we'll stand before the throne of God in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and we won't shake in fear, we'll get to gaze at him because God has presented us holy and blameless himself. He has done it. We're not going to earn it. We're never going to become it. Christ is making us into it. He's presenting us before the Father as if we already are that. It's unbelievable. See, you need to do this to yourself. You start talking about Jesus, I start getting excited myself when I start talking about Jesus. Right? You start talking about Jesus, you start thinking about Jesus. What has he done? Who is he? And you know what? These idols become what? Jokes. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting, look, from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Listen, this is it. It's the gospel. There's no second thing you need to do. There's no third thing you need to do. You need to believe the gospel. It's not something you did when you were 14 at church camp. You just did it once and then you walk away from it. Now on to bigger, better things. 
The gospel is something we shift from and we have to come back to and we have to remember, look what God has done in Christ. No idol has lived for me. No idol has died for me. No idol has resurrected for me. No idol will present me before the throne of God, holy and blameless. Jesus has done it in the gospel. This is the good news. Will you believe it? Will you believe it? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, Jesus, the fullness of God dwells in him. The image of God. And he's crucified. He's crucified. He's betrayed. He's pushed out so we could be brought in. And on the night, the night he was betrayed, the night before he was going to be crucified, he took the Passover and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's been shed for you. See, he's, what's he doing? This, this is a gospel meal. This is a meal that's full of good news. Basically, good news through Jesus is bad news. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to be killed. But this is good news for you because this is how I'm going to make you right with the Father. This is how I'm going to present you holy and blameless before him. And this is a perpetual meal that we continue on. And so believers, this morning as we come before, I hope that you open up your hands and you receive the body of Christ and you take the body and you put it in the blood and you receive the body and the blood that reminds you of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And I pray that it would have an expulsive power in your heart, that it would overpower your affections for your idols. You'd be reminded of what he's done for you today. Let me pray. Father, we do worship you. We do thank you. We do confess to you that we have turned from you and we've worshiped idols. But Father, you knew this about us. You provided for us a sacrifice that would cover our sins. You gave us the righteousness of Christ by faith and you even fill us with the Holy Spirit. And so I thank you for this and I pray that we would confess our sins, we would put our faith back in Jesus Christ, we would believe the gospel this morning and we would come as humble, thankful, worshipful, joyful believers this morning and take of your body and eat and take of your blood and drink that covers all of our sins and makes us white as snow. I thank you for this and I praise you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.